Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone that's uh, been out and about this summer on vacation, and now the bad news, school has started or is about to start, and everybody's here, and that's good for us. We're glad you're here. Uh, one of the things that uh, was mentioned this morning that I want to urge you towards, and that's our small groups. We talk about community a lot around here. If you come to the membership class in October, you'll hear that uh, spoken to uh, at length. Uh, we are convinced that you cannot develop true and meaningful community by showing up on Sunday and calling it good, that you've got to cultivate lives that live together throughout the week. And so if you're not involved in a home group or you're in one that just doesn't fit with your time or whatever, please sign up online. Let us work with you to find a place that you can fit in and plug in and really want to encourage you to do that. Um, kind of along that same line, the opportunity to serve at Lubbock Impact is a great thing to do as a small group. Um, if you're looking for something to do where you serve together uh, the needy, the homeless in our community, this is perfect. would encourage you as a small group to, content to consider doing that together. Uh, you'll be blessed if you do. So please consider those things. And then lastly, just a quick reminder that uh, for those who are members of Melanie Park, we will meet immediately following the service for our vote of affirmation. So don't go anywhere. Stick around. We'll take care of that and get you out of here as quickly as possible. So I uh, just want to remind you of that. Well, we're in the book of James. And if you look at a lot of the commentaries, the letter of James kind of gets a bad rap. A lot of the scholars see James as, as covering a lot of a ground, but they say it's just kind of a, a collection of disconnected thoughts, where it's as if James just kind of thinks of something and starts talking about it. But I want you to know, I do not see it that way at all. James does cover a lot of ground. There are a lot of topics, but there does seem to be a very purposeful path through which he navigates his way through all these topics. Just as a reminder, James is writing to exiles who are living in a land that is not their home. They're there because of persecution. They're living in foreign territory, which is very different than their lives back in Jerusalem. The religious practice that once helped them fit into that religious community is now the very thing that makes them be set apart in a very compromising world. Truly committed Christians in the ancient world, much like today, live well outside the cultural norm. As a result, if someone wants to faithfully follow Christ in a sin-cursed world, it won't be easy. They live in a world where they're surrounded by compromise. There are any number of temptations that threaten to, to lure them away. And, and knowing these struggles and these challenges, James takes some time to, to write this letter as an encouragement to, to allow these Christians to understand some of the principles of what it means to stand strong even when surrounded by compromise. As we look back at the beginning of chapter 1, he began by talking about trials. Trials are, are things that happen in our life that, that in some ways test our faith. It's where we learn the truth. That we are adequate and equipped for all the demands and stresses in life. Because God is sufficient to meet our every need. 
we have all the tools. The Bible says we have everything we need for life and godliness. But James reminds us that we need God's wisdom. We have to ask for that wisdom to understand how to employ those tools, how to use those gifts to live faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world. We have to be very deliberate about filtering out the fake news of worldly wisdom and living according to the real truth of a sovereign God. God can use our struggles, and he often does, to to help strengthen our faith. But our enemy can enter into some of those same struggles and use them to create doubt. He wants us to question the character of God. Think back to the garden. It's the question he asked Eve. Is that really what he said? Hmm. He wants us to consider the possibility that there just might be a better way outside the boundary of God's design. James understands that that there is often temptation hidden within the context of every trial. And where trials are intended to, to draw us closer to the Lord, temptation entices us towards sin. God may test, but he does not tempt. Trials and temptations are closely related, but they are two totally different things. They're closely related because one is often found inside of the other one. But we need to understand that they have two completely different purposes. One is used by God to draw us closer to Him. The other is used by our enemy to draw us away from God. And it's very important that we understand the difference between the two as we try to navigate this life in a way that honors the Lord. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we do as James instructs us. We ask for wisdom. These are words on a page that are foolishness to men apart from the work of the Spirit. So God, we invite you through the power of your Spirit to do a work in our heart so that these words bring life. They bring hope. They bring understanding. We depend on you for wisdom we do not possess on our own. So would you open our eyes, open our ears, help us understand the truth of your Word in a way that impacts how we live. Lord, that's our prayer. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to James chapter 1. And we'll pick up where we left off, uh, looking at verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to look at several passages this morning. Uh, Important to understand the path that James is taking us through. I have them up on the screen, but please look at them in, in your Bible if you have it with you. So James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. (laughs) Now, that doesn't require a lot of explanation, does it? James is pretty clear. God does not tempt, nor is he tempted. Because at its core, temptation has an evil purpose. 
temptation entices us towards sin. In 1 John, we read that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That means that temptation works against the very character of God. He is righteous and holy. He is perfect and just. He who knows no sin cannot, would not, will not ever tempt us towards sin. Temptation actually has a completely different source. And the answer may surprise you. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my dear brethren. You are the source of your own temptation. Can't blame it on God. He does not tempt. We can't even blame it on Satan. We can only blame ourselves because it says we are carried away and enticed by our own lusts. Now, I want you, when you hear that word lust, I want you to think of a sin-corrupted desire, okay? That's what lust is. It's a sin-corrupted desire. John Piper describes it as a desire that is untethered from the purifying effects of Christ. It's a good description. It's a desire that is untethered from the purifying effects of Christ. It's a desire directed towards the the wrong object or in the wrong proportion. It's a longing for something outside the boundary of God's design. It could be sex. It could be money. It could be ambition. None of those things of which are evil in and of themselves. They only become destructive when untethered from the purifying effects of Christ. A desire that is directed towards the wrong object. Such as desiring someone other than your spouse. A desire in the wrong proportion. Such as the love of money turning into greed. Now, I want to pause here. Because James is describing a battle that can only exist in the heart of a believer. He is writing to fellow Christians. He is calling my dear brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He's writing to a Christian audience. He is describing a battle that can only take place in the heart of a believer. Apart from Christ, we are a slave to sin and there is no battle. Don't miss this. Apart from Christ, we are a slave to sin and there is no battle. We are completely controlled by sinful desires and powerless, powerless to break free. Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That we indulge in the desires of the flesh. That by nature, we are children of wrath. In other words, apart from Christ, we are a slave to sin-cursed desires. Have I made that clear? But when you place your faith in Christ, that bondage to sin is broken. 
Let me show you where that's true. Romans chapter 6 is one of many places. This is one of my favorites. Romans chapter 6 verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen to this. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, and here's the result, that we are no longer slaves to sin. The miracle of redemption breaks the bondage to sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. We have a new life in Christ. His Spirit empowers us to overcome sin-corrupted desires. There is a battle in the heart of a believer where once there was only bondage. Knowing this truth, James explains the the work of temptation in the heart of a believer. It helps us understand that we cannot say, the devil made me do it. It's not possible. You no longer live under his control. The power of sin has been broken. The devil did not make you do it. Because he cannot control you. We can't blame it on God. Because God is not tempted, nor does he tempt. We are responsible. And here's why. Because we now have the freedom to choose. As a work of God's redemption, we now have the freedom to choose. James describes, if you look at verse 14 in our passage again, what he describes there, when I read that verse, I actually think of fishing. (laughs) I know that sounds strange, but when I think of fishing, I think of HUD. HUD's a great fisherman. I loved going fishing with HUD because I would just watch and learn how he did it, right? We would drive our boat around the lake, and he'd kind of be surveying the shoreline. He'd see a kind of a rocky outcropping. He'd say, I bet there's a fish in there. I'm thinking, how does he know this? Because I can't see any fish. And he said, oh, there's a fish in there. So we'll pull up the boat. And sure enough, he would cast out beyond that rock. And then he'd slowly lure that bait back towards him in front of that rock. I kind of imagine in my mind this fish sitting underneath the shelter of that rock. And here comes the bait. Ooh, it's enticing, right? And that bait lures that fish from underneath that shelter. And then... The enticement becomes too strong to the point that it just has to have it. And so it grabs it. And when it does, that HUD goes, oh, 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 there it is. And he sets the hook, and then he's carrying the fish away. He gets them every time. We need to understand that there is an evil influence in this world who wants to carry you away. He wants to lure you from the protection of, of God's truth through deceptive desires. He, he wants to control you, but he can't. Our enemy cannot control you, but he can entice you. He can try to lure you away. But what he promises to be fulfilling, what may look so appetizing at first glance, is ultimately destructive. And in the end, our fate is determined by the choice we make. 
again, in Romans chapter 6, if you read on down a few verses in verse 12, listen to this. This is what it says. Therefore, based on having been dead to sin and alive in Christ, it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. The key word in that passage is let. Let. Do not let sin reign, that you should obey its lust. Do not obey those sin-corrupted desires that Satan will use to draw you away because what he promises to be fulfilling will ultimately become destructive. James describes that reality in our passage. Look at what he says again in verse 15. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived in believing that sin is no big deal. Because sin, even in the life of a believer, comes with consequences. The more we follow lustful desires, the more control they have in our life. Our enemy wants to rob us, wants to steal, to kill and destroy all the good things that God has built into his design. Following our lust can destroy our marriage. It's a gift from God. Following our lust can fracture our family. It's a gift from God. Following our lust can end our careers. It is a provision from God. The more we follow lustful desires, the more control they have in our life. See, when we let sin reign, don't miss this. When we let sin reign, we take the keys of our heart and we place them into the hands of our enemy. He can only have control when we willfully give it to him. That's why Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what he says here. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from flesh, fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. This is a spiritual battle. It is a war against your soul. We are strangers and aliens who live in enemy territory. Have your guard up. Be ready, because the enemy is all around us seeking to lure us away from the protection of God's truth. And the solution is not a greater resolve of, oh, I'll just work harder. I'll be stronger. It's not a change of your circumstances, as if that will make temptation go away. See, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. And you take that wherever you go. So look at how James continues In verse 17 of our passage. He says, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights 
with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. The point of what James is saying here is that God is always and eternally good. If you don't remember anything else from what I say this morning, please don't miss that. God is always and eternally good. He has been from the very beginning. What James is doing here is, is drawing on the, the language of creation. Every good thing, every perfect gift comes from the, the Father of lights, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who, who created the stars, the Father of those lights. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 40, if you've memorized that chapter as we talked about doing this summer, in verse 26 it says, To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. It says, lift up your eyes and see the one who created the stars, the one who leads the host by number. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God spoke light into a dark world. And unlike the world he created that, that changes with time, our God is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is always and eternally good. Always and eternally good. There is no greater example of the goodness of our God than his work of redemption. That's what James is speaking to when he says, by the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He's continuing this imagery of creation, and he's now applying it to our salvation. Just as God spoke light into a dark world, he spoke life into a dark and sinful heart. And notice it was by his will. By his will. God made a choice independent of our actions. God decided to bring redemption, even though there is not a person in this room, including the one standing up here, that deserves his forgiveness. A salvation made known by the word of truth. You look all throughout Scripture, and you're going to see that phrase, the word of truth, and when you see it, it's speaking about the gospel, the hope of salvation in Christ alone. One of those places that you could look at is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, In him you also, after listening to the message or the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We see the goodness of our God in creation and in His recreation. We are the first fruits of a complete redemption that is yet to come. I promise where God says, I will make all things new. And all creation, including us, groans and longs for that day to be fulfilled. 
we know that because of what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The presence of the Spirit is how we overcome the lust of the flesh. The first fruits of our salvation is the redemptive work of the Spirit in our hearts. A redemption that transforms our desires. It teaches us to, to delight in the things of God. And the more we delight in God, the less we are tempted towards sin. The more we delight in God, the less we are tempted towards sin. The reason I know that's true is because of what we read in Galatians. When it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, delight in the things of God, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It goes on and says, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you might not do the things that you please or that you desire. The presence of the Spirit is how we overcome the desires of the flesh. That's why Paul says in that passage in Galatians, so that you may not do the things you desire, <laughs> the lust of the flesh. We overcome corrupted desires by learning to love the things of God, aligning our heart with God's truth so our desires overlap with His will, experiencing the good things, the perfect gifts, built within the beauty of his design. Now, I want you to see where James has taken us so that we can understand how to apply these truths to our lives. I believe there's a purpose in the path that he takes. And again, it ties back to the discussion of trials. Because trials and temptations are two realities that we all face this side of heaven. As long as we are exiles, and we are, in a world that is not our home, and it's not, they will be a part of our reality every single day. Even though they are closely related, they are two totally different things. They are different because they have a different intended outcome. God uses one to draw us closer to Him. Satan uses the other to draw us away from God. In a sense, one, you want to walk through. The other, you want to run from. One, you want to walk through. The other, you want to run from. We see this in the language that the Bible uses when it talks about these two things. And we've seen it in our passage, even this morning, and as we've talked about trials. Back in verse 12, James says, Blessed. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. There is a blessing attached to perseverance. He says that the, the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance has a good result. In fact, he calls it a perfect result. It's because trials help us grow. They help us mature. They, they strengthen our faith. We endure through them. 
because trials are intended to turn our heart towards Christ. They have a sanctifying or refining effect in our life. Think of it as, as gold being purified in a fire. Trials often purify our hearts before God. It helps reveal the, the character of what it looks like to be more like Christ. Now, when the Bible talks about temptation, it uses completely different words. Things like flee and escape. Because following temptation ultimately leads to destruction. It causes us to, to follow, fall away, to, to become untethered from the purifying effects of Christ. It creates doubt, causes us to, to question the very character of God. But in the end, how we navigate through both trials and temptations boils down to a decision of trust. It boils down to a decision of trust. Where do you believe you can experience the best possible outcome in your life? Do you turn to God who is always and eternally good? Or do you follow temptation believing that there just might be something better outside the boundary of His design? Be honest with yourself. Who really has your best intention in mind? How you answer that question will determine the decision you make. And here's the good news. As a child of God, there's never any such thing as a hopeless situation. (laughs) I want you to hear that. Because we all make bad decisions and sometimes we feel like we're in hopeless situations. But as a child of God, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. Because if you are a child of God, you take the person and work of Christ into every situation in which you live. And He has the power to redeem. There is nothing outside the boundary of His redemptive hand. God has the power to help you get through, or he also has the power to help you get out. Sometimes he wants to help you strengthen your faith, and other times he wants to call you to repentance. The key is understanding which one applies. Because here's the deal, I want you to listen to this. Because sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we need to stay in, but the truth is we're looking for a way out. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we need to stay in, where we need to endure, but instead we're looking for a way of escape. Maybe it's a difficult marriage, an unfulfilling job, a rebellious child. Instead of turning to God and relying on His truth, instead of looking for His provision, we are looking for a way out. We want to escape. We run when really we need to endure. At other times, it's just the opposite. We endure when we really need to run. We let sin linger. It could be pornography. It could be cheating on your taxes. It could be cheating in the classroom. It could be cheating on your family because of the busyness of life. When we do those things, it's like having a lion for a pet or a cobra for a playmate. It's only a matter of time before they turn on you and they kill you. 
Don't let sin linger. Turn and run. We must rely on God's wisdom to know the difference between the two. Whether he wants to help you get through or give you a way of escape. But please understand, and this is so important, so listen closely. This is not an isolated choice that is separate from a pattern of life. Okay? When we come to this decision that I keep referring to, this is not an isolated choice that is separate from a pattern of life. Our choices are influenced by our habits. Our choices are influenced by our habits. Sometimes I think we can just kind of carry on and navigate life on our own, and when it comes to a difficult decision, then we ask God for wisdom, and poof, like magic, it's there. But if we live according to worldly desires, we will not make godly decisions. If we live according to worldly desires, we will not make godly decisions. If, if our commitment to God is a religious duty, we won't make wise decisions. When God is not that big of a deal, then temptation will always have a greater appeal. Did you hear that? When God is not that big of a deal, temptation will always have a greater appeal. These decisions are not isolated from the pattern of our life. How many of you all remember the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What that's telling us is that the more we delight in God, the less we are tempted towards sin. Not a life of religious duty, just kind of going through the motions, but a soul-satisfying delight. A delight that redeems our desires, a, a delight that comes from abiding in Christ, who is always and eternally good. Our choices are influenced by our habits. And when we walk with Christ, when we live in community, when we reflect on His Word, when we trust in His Spirit, we will walk in wisdom. If that's not our pattern, it won't be our choice because it's not the desire of our heart. Do you see that? We overcome sin-corrupted desires by delighting in the things of God, aligning our heart with God's truth so that our desires overlap with God's will. In other words, we want what God wants. And those are the decisions that we make. Experiencing the good things, the perfect gifts built within His design because we believe our desire is driven our choices are made upon the deep heartfelt conviction that he is always and eternally good if that's the delight and desire of our heart then that's where we find the wisdom of god in the choices that we make let's pray together lord thank you for this truth that we so desperately need in to hear in a world where we are the aliens and strangers. We are surrounded by compromise. We live in a battle against our soul where our enemy, even though we belong to you, wants to rob us of the gifts you have given us. We are surrounded by temptation that wants to lure us from the protection of your truth. 
wants to take us away outside the boundaries of your design, promising something better than what you said is true. Lord, may we reject it. May we believe that you are always and eternally good. May our desires be changed. May we have a new delight in our heart that overcomes the deception of sin-corrupted desires and finds within it a worship of a real God who is living and active in our hearts, desiring to show us the good things, the perfect gifts that you've prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. That's who you are. You're always and eternally good. Help us to trust that and realize that we only do when the pattern of our life is abiding in you. The choices we make cannot be separated from that pattern. So cultivate in our hearts a desire to know you and a delight from knowing you so that we live in worship and walk in wisdom. That's the key, Lord. Thank you for that promise. We pray this in your name.